Shall we pray? God, our Father, Lord, we rejoice at the thought of you, God. We praise you. Lord, we glorify you and we honor you. We, we recognize that you are the sovereign king, Lord, that you are over everything, that you hold the universe, God, in your hands. And, Lord, we just, we just honor you. We bless you this day. We thank you that you are God. We thank you, Lord, that, that you have everything in control. We thank you that, Lord, even though the winds and the waves assault us each day, each week, each month, each year, that, Lord, you are ever the same, that you're the everlasting rock, the immovable rock. God, we can put our faith in you, our trust in you. And, Lord, uh, uh, we have the cross, Lord, which brings us to you, God, which releases us from our sins and sets us free. God, we praise you. We thank you for the holy cross of Jesus. Oh, Lord, we do treasure it. We stand in wonder and amazement at what you have done in the cross. God is a glorious, beautiful thing to us, and we honor you and we praise you for it. I pray, God, that you would ignite the fire of love in our heart for you, God. Oh, Lord, that we might learn to love you with all that is within us. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather here week by week, to look at your word, to consider it, to meditate upon it. We thank you, God, for all the things that you're doing in our lives, in our marriages, in our families. We praise you. Truly, you are good, Lord, and we praise you. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather here with your family this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So we started off uh, last week on a new section of our series of lessons this year. And we moved from talking about the person of Jesus Christ to talking about the work of Jesus Christ. And... So in talking about the work of Jesus Christ, I don't know if you guys have actually seen this. You probably have. I hope you have. If you haven't, this is an outline of the entire year's lessons that we're going to be going through. And we're in the middle section on that, the cross, the work of Jesus Christ. If you don't have that outline and you're interested in getting it, it's also on the adult Bible class online lesson page right at the top. There's a link that says... I think it's the brochure or the class outline. Click on that, and this will come up. And it's just giving you an outline of what we're going through. I'm, I'm right now right smack dab there in the middle. The nature, necessity, and sufficiency of the atonement. Okay? So, <clears throat> so we've moved on from talking about the person of Jesus Christ to talking about the work of Jesus Christ. And so we're talking about all that Christ did in his ministry um, in the incarnation, coming to earth, becoming a man, and all that he was sent to accomplish, that's what we're looking at here. And, and of course, last week we talked about the fact that this isn't just some series of events that just happened to take place, but in fact this was God's plan of redemption being lived out, and that, that the focal point of all of human history focuses on the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and I, I made such uh, radical statements as this. The whole world exists so Jesus can die on a cross. 
Okay, you have to get a biblical mindset about what things are for. Why are we here? Why is there a nebula a million miles out into space? Or should I say a million trillion miles out into space? Why is that thing there? It's there to manifest the glory and excellency of God. But in this creation that he's made, the most important things that have happened took place at Calvary in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago when Jesus, the Son of God, was crucified on that mountain. Okay? That was the central thing in all of the things that God is doing. It's his plan. He's bringing it to pass. And it was at the cross there that Jesus dealt the decisive blow to the enemies of God. Okay? Which would include Satan and his demons. Right? But furthermore, sin and death. Sin and death received the decisive blow from the hand of God on the cross. Okay? And that really is what we're focusing on. And, and, and I was saying that this, in relation to man, okay, or in relation to mankind, to people, the most important thing, the primary thing that God has done is the cross. Okay? And because we know that the primary thing that God's primary purpose above all is to manifest his own glory and excellency and nature as God, right? But what I was su- suggesting to you that is, is that in the cross is the place where he has done that with the most intensity. It's in the cross where we see all of the glory and the attributes of God <clears throat> coming there to to fruition before our eyes in a way that we can truly understand it. And so you can look there at the cross and you can think about the attributes of God and you can just be swept away in wonder. I mean, consider the wisdom of God in the cross. You with me? Consider the patience of God in the cross. Consider the compassion of God in the cross. I mean, pick an attribute. Pick an attribute and look at the cross, be swept away in wonder. It's amazing. Your mind can't even comprehend it. Amen? Amen. Well, to sum up, excuse me, to sum up last week's lesson would, would be to say this, that Jesus Christ is the focal point of human history. God's plan of redemption was accomplished at the cross. And, 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 and it's to understand that this is happening at the sovereign plan and the sovereign will of a sovereign God who in his providence is bringing to pass his purposes in the world. And so when, when those things happened at the cross, okay, everything from that time forward is now in a process of being brought under the feet of Christ, okay? His enemies have been dealt the decisive blow. Right now we're in a time period when all these things are happening, but they're ultimately culminating uh, in, in a time when he will come again, not, not this time as a suffering servant, but as a conquering king, and he will forcibly put under his feet the rest of his enemies. And... and uh, from 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 the day from that day forward, okay, God's kingdom will rule 
God's kingdom will reign. His enemies will be put asunder completely. And his people will live in glory and in bliss, world without end, forevermore. Amen? And it's just an amazing thing how God is just working this process out. But the fact of the matter is, the cross is the center focus of it all. And you, you, you cannot view your life as a Christian apart from the cross. The cross is everything. It should be everything to you. And, and of course, the Savior that is there on the cross, who is God himself. Amen? This is what's central to our life, family. And not only that, the cross is, think of how Jesus is a teacher on the cross. Think of how Jesus teaches us to love when he's hanging there on that cross. Think how he teaches us to forgive when he's hanging there on that cross. Think how he teaches us to be patient in suffering with endurance. You realize he could have called 10,000 angels. Amen? He didn't, did he? No, no, he, he patiently endured. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Amen? Just a glorious thing to, to consider the cross. Well, so <clears throat> when we start talking about the cross, we start talking about the plan of redemption, and we start talking about what God did there, okay? It's not just some simple little thing where we pull some verse of Scripture out and say, that's what God did, okay? Because there are many, many profound things that have happened there, and there are many different facets to that diamond of the atonement. It's something that is large in scope. It's broad. It's not just some one single thing, okay? Many different things happened at the cross. Probably there will be things that happen at the cross. No doubt there is things that happen at the cross that I will not cover. It would take us a really long time to look at the full scope of everything that happened at the cross. Um, however, when we talk about the atonement, uh, there there is, uh, if you will, uh, uh, a plethora of words and passages in the Bible that describe the very specific work of the very sacrifice of Christ and what it accomplished, okay? So when we talk about the atonement, that's what we're looking to, and that's what we're looking to understand. We're looking to understand what has the Bible said about what actually happened on the cross, and what is this whole thing about? What is this whole thing about, this guy coming and dying on a cross? It's an amazing thing. I don't know about you, but when... When I'm witnessing to people and trying to evangelize them, to me it's really important to get to the cross as quickly as possible. Because, you know, people don't realize their need for salvation until they understand this cross. This cross is everything. You know? And and you kinda you know, you might be you start to explain somebody they're a sinner, you know, and the first thing they do is they get repelled by that. They get repulsed by that and they think, Well, what are you, holier than me? You know, and, and this, this uh, you know, they think Christians are hypocrites. You know, why is that? Well, because Christians are hypocrites. <laughs> They're preaching a perfect God and none of them are perfect. Are you with me? And, and so, and, and not only that, that's why there's a cross. Because all, we all, like sheep, have gone astray, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we Christians are not saying to other people, we're holier than you. Right? We're saying Jesus died for your sins if you'll trust him and believe in him. This atonement is there for you. Trust him. Amen? Well, so um, 
So when we're evangelizing people, I think, you know, we just get right to the point when we get to the cross. And, you know, here's what you do. You want to stir up a conversation, look them right in the eyes and say, why did Jesus have to die? And get their little brain churning about that. Or their big brain. Some have big brains, man. (laughs) Churning about that. Get them thinking about that. Why did Jesus have to die? Ask yourself that question. Is it clear in your mind? Do you understand? That's the nature of our lesson here, family. We're learning to master these truths about why Christ died. We're looking to the scripture to find out what the scripture has said about why Christ died, what it's all about. What is this gospel? What is this good news? And what's so good about it? You know, uh, uh, you, you understand that in 1 Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 1, he says, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them who are perishing. See, they, they, they can't grasp it. They can't understand it. But this is what it is. It's the preaching of the cross. The gospel is the preaching of the cross. It's the preaching of the atonement. It's the preaching of what happened at the cross. That's the central issue. Let me tell you, it's not seven healthy habits for better time management. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? Family, there's so much folly in religion. Okay? Listen, it's about Jesus and his cross, and it's about your relationship to God which is in desperate need of repair. Amen? Amen. And God has provided a way for it to be repaired. And if you don't get it repaired, let me tell you something. You're headed for doom. Doom. Worse doom than I could possibly describe to you with words. You follow me? It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And knowing the terror of the Lord, we seek to persuade men. You follow me? And how do we persuade men? What are we persuading men to do? To see Jesus on the cross and embrace him there as Savior and Lord and Master and King. Amen? Well, so, um, with that, we'll look at the top of page 39. We'll, we'll talk about this thing, defining the atonement. It would be one thing just to say, well, what is this biblical word, atonement? What does it mean? And we're done. But it's not like that. And the reason why is this. The atonement is a biblical word, and it's a word that means specific things where it's used in the scripture. But in the topic of theological conversation, the atonement is something much broader than just the biblical word and its meaning in its context. Okay? And that's what I want you to kind of get here this morning. As we talk about the atonement, we're talking about the whole scope of Christ's saving work. And all the different facets of it. Okay? Defining the atonement. The atonement has become a term with many theological implications. It is not just merely a biblical word with a single idea, but has become a term which describes the whole scope of Christ's saving work. It is a word describing the salvific or redemptive results arising from Jesus' death. Atonement puts forth the idea of reconciliation between God and mankind, and this accomplished solely by the work of God in Christ's sacrifice. Many have used the description of at-one-ment to describe the result of atonement brought about between God and mankind. It's kind of an interesting thing. They take the word atonement and they break it into this. 
And frankly, in the English, this is really what it means. Um, <clears throat> the idea that's conveyed in this English word is the bringing of one together, man and God. Okay, which is effectively what the atonement did. Okay, now the Bible uses all different kinds and manner of words and pictures and represent representative uh, instruction. To, to teach us this truth, okay? But effectively, you know, the outcome of the atonement can be uh, uh, put into words like this. Reconciliation. It's another biblical word that is describing what this English word atonement means, okay? So the English word atonement really does kind of carry this with it, atonement, okay? But I'm going to show you how it's used in the Bible kind of has these various meanings, but you need to understand what we're saying. We're not just talking about the one specific biblical word, atonement, and what it means in its context. When we talk about the atonement, we're talking about the whole scope of the saving work of Christ, which effectively is reconciliation between God and man, to bring God and man as one together, to remove the barriers that, that, uh, that have God estranged from us. Okay? All right, so then, many have, uh, I'm sorry, let's see here. It, it therefore has emphasis on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, okay? The, the, the whole saving work of Christ, the atonement, has emphasis, it has an emphasis, okay, on the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, it is an English word used by translators uh, in both Old and New Testaments. The two Old Testament Hebrew words commonly translated as atonement are kippur and kafar. Carry with them the idea of expiation to remove offense or guilt or to cover over. Okay? Now, grab your Bible, pull out your Bible, and I'll show you what we mean here. Look in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23, and uh, look at verse 28. I want to show you this. You'll kind of get a sense for uh, what, what I'm saying here. There the scripture says, You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. <coughs> okay? Now there Moses is giving the children of Israel instructions about the day of atonement, right? Now you know the day of atonement is is a Sabbath, a high Sabbath day, and it's a it's a it's a uh, it's a, uh, a a day of mourning where the nation of Israel had an, an annual rite that was given to them by God, whereby they would atone for their sins. And the priest had specific instructions about what he was supposed to do. That was the actual day when the high priest went into the holy of holies once a year, right? That happened on the day of atonement, and he would go in, he would sprinkle the blood on the, on the uh, Ark of the Covenant and on the mercy seat. And, um, and they would have the two lambs, two goats, remember? And one was the scapegoat and one was the uh, offering of the sacrifice. And the one that would be sacrificed, the high priest would take his blood in and, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And the other scapegoat, the priest would lay his hands on the head of that goat and he would um, 
confess and pronounce all the sins of Israel on that goat. And then that goat was to be taken by uh, uh, a man out as far out into the wilderness as he could possibly find so that that thing could never find its way back, right? Mm -hmm. Symbolic of what? How God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. Amen? And, and how he will remember them no more in the words of the prophets. Right? So, okay, so that's the kind of thing that was going on in the Day of Atonement. But look at this verse. Look what it says. It says, you shall not do any work on this day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. Now, the reason I picked out this verse is because Atonement is used twice in this verse. In both places where this uh, word, English word atonement appears, there's two different Hebrew words. Okay, now, the one where it says the day of atonement, how many of you know the Hebrew word for the day of atonement? Yom Kippur, day of atonement. Okay, that's the Hebrew word for the noun atonement. Kippur, okay? Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, all right? But then the next place in this scripture where it's used, it says, uh, to make atonement on your behalf. Now we're talking about a verb, to make atonement, okay? And and uh, it's actually two English words here, make atonement, okay? But the, the Hebrew word for those two English words is kafar, okay? And that word... Uh, means to cover, to expiate or condone, to placate or cancel, to appease, to make atonement, to cleanse, disannul, forgive, be merciful, pacify, pardon, purge, um, a way to put off, to reconcile, to make reconciliation. Okay? That's all there on your handout. That's what this word kafar means. Okay? So in the scripture, and these, these words are used a lot in the Old Testament, okay? But just remember, when you're reading that English word atonement, you, you can really just kind of understand which Hebrew word it is by, is it being used as a noun or is it being used as a verb? Okay, because almost every time, the verb form means to cover over, to expiate, to, to, uh, to placate, to appease, okay? It's very similar to the other English word we call propitiation. Okay, these a lot of these words are, are real similar. Okay, but in the Hebrew, kippur and kafar, got that? The noun and the verb. Okay, all right. The New Testament word normally translated as propitiation is the Greek hilasterion, and also carries with it the idea of expiation to remove offense or guilt, or also to cover over. In fact. The Greek term actually holds a more personal meaning to the means of expiation, namely that of an atoning victim or the actual sacrifice of atonement. Okay, Because the places where we use the English word atonement in the New Testament, those Greek words are actually taking on more of a personal sense. And, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, if you look at the Greek definition there, halisterion, you see that on your handout? You see the number there? Just by the way, if you don't know what that number is, it's a Strong's number. That's a number that the Strong's concordance has assigned to all the biblical words, and it's a, it's a numbering system, one of the numbering systems that's used 
uh, by people who study the Bible to, to catalog all the words and to get their definition. So what I've, what I've printed out for you here is effectively just the definition out of the Strong's uh, uh, concordance and, and lexicon. And so um, the, the Greek word for the word propitiation, okay, is, is the word halisterion, and this is what it means, an expiatory place or thing. Now, it's not just an expiatory. It's an expiatory place or thing. You with me? It is an atoning victim. An atoning victim. It's the actual lamb on the altar. Are you with me? It's a propitiation. The lamb on the altar is a propitiation. It's an expiatory. Okay? Bear with me. You'll get this. These big words actually mean something. Or, or especially the lid of the ark. Get this. The lid of the ark in the temple is called the mercy seat. Or if you read an NIV, you know what it's called? The, the atonement cover. The atonement cover. Because, because the way this word translates into English, okay, the actual lid of the ark covers over. Okay? This, this gives you the sense of what propitiation means. It's a covering over. Okay? But it takes on this other sense of an atoning victim. So it's like this. The atoning victim that covers over. You follow me? Why does that lamb die? Cover over. Cover over the sins. I was, uh, uh, me and some bros are reading through the Bible twice this year. And uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's uh, kicking our rear end. But we're trying. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I was, I was reading through Leviticus and I was looking at the, the offerings. You know, that in the first few chapters of Leviticus there, it's the, you know, the guilt offering and the burnt offering and all these offerings. And something really stuck out to me there. I, I never realized this, but, you know, when the, when the guy came to bring his burnt offering or his sin offering, I always thought, well, he, you know, he brought, he brought the lamb and, and then he gave it to the priest and the priest took it in there and sacrificed it on the altar. No, 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 no. <laughs> Let me tell you, he jumped off the page of scripture and grabbed me. That man has to kill that animal with his own hands. And give it to the priest. You know what? He doesn't just kill it. He has to skin it and cut it in its pieces for the priest. And uh, I think that it takes on this very personal, very personal thing for that man to see that this animal must die for his sins before a holy God. Are you with me? And uh, go back and check it out. Leviticus chapters 1 through 6. Um, but uh, uh, just just really grab me because I understand how personal the cross is. You know, I understand that Jesus had to die there for my sins, for the sins of Sean Sloan. <coughs> Jesus Christ had to die. Are you with me? It's a very personal thing. And um, <coughs> this Greek word, halisterion, talks about that 
victim that's dying to cover over the sins. So when you read the English word propitiation, think about this. The dying victim that covers over. You with me? That's the sense that it takes on. Okay, so then, in summary of the use of the biblical words, we can say that although the meaning of the words themselves is rather clear, the idea or concept of the atonement has taken on a theological meaning used to refer to the whole scope of Christ's saving work. In this scope of meaning, there are words which are frequently used to describe the nature, the quality, and the character of the atonement. This is because Christ's work is so profound that the Bible uses many terms to describe it. These would be, but are not limited to words like, okay? So I'm going to give you some of these words, biblical words and concepts that are used to describe the atonement or the whole scope of Christ's saving work. Here's what they are. And if you will, I made this, I made this chart so that you could see it. Did everybody get one of these? Pull that chart out. And um, so when we talk about atonement, atonement takes on all this character, okay? It takes on all this character. It has all these different facets to it. Now, why do I say that? Because that's how the Bible describes it. The Bible uses substitutionary words. The Bible uses expiatory words. The Bible uses vicarious words. The Bible uses uh, redemptive words. Okay? That's, that's where I get this. And the one thing I didn't have time for was to plug scriptures into each one of those boxes. But I'll get there. Okay? But the point is, is just that uh, <clears throat> there's all these words that are used in the Bible to speak of it. And each one of them talks about a little bit different aspect of what the atonement is. Okay? So when you think about the atonement, remember, it's, it's not just that dying victim that covers over, but everything that that dying victim actually in the, in the Lamb of God, Jesus, who died to take away the sins of the world, okay? What he accomplished in that, in that, uh, in that work, okay? So it's, uh, these words are like the word substitutionary or substitution, which means that he died in the place of, right? So uh, if you go to school and your teacher's not there and you have another teacher, she is a a substitute. She's there because the other teacher is not, right? She's there in the place of that other teacher, right? So when we talk about the death of Christ, this is what the scripture says. Christ died in our place. He died as a substitute. It was like we were supposed to be there and he was there instead. Are you with me? Okay. Then the idea of vicarious. How many of you have heard that word, vicarious? You know, if you read, if you read through ch- different churches through their statement of faith, usually when they get to the part about uh, Christ's death, th- it'll say it's a vicarious substitutionary atonement. Okay? Ever wonder about that word vicarious? Here's what it means. It's a very personal word, the word vicarious. It means in our place for us, okay? Substitution implied personally. Listen, Christ didn't just die in our place. He died for us. He died for us. That's what vicarious means. 
He died for me. He died for Sean Sloan. You follow me? This is what this word vicarious means. It's something that's very personal. Okay? He, he died in my place for me specifically. Not just as some representative figure before God. You understand? It, it, it's the same thing as in, in the law, it, it, on these burnt offerings, right? God commanded. When, uh, you know, you need to bring a burnt offering for you and your family. Okay? And he commanded all the families of Israel. They had to do this. They, they couldn't just, the high priest just couldn't take one lamb and sacrifice him as a representative for the whole nation, although he did that, right? Every family had was responsible to bring a lamb for their family to sacrifice a burnt offering. Okay? And, and the point is, is that this is a very personal thing. Every family head, representative of his family, needs their sins atoned for and covered by God. Amen? And so this is what vicarious is. That lamb that each one of those family heads was bringing was a vicarious substitutionary atonement for their family. Okay? It was a very personal thing. It's not just a representative figurehead. You have to understand why I make that point. Okay? Listen, the atonement is under attack, family. So, you know, you, you, maybe you scratch your head sometimes and wonder, why is that crazy preacher going off on that crazy thing? You know, because there are enemies out there that are trying to tear apart this, understand, this biblical understanding of the atonement. Okay? Um, and and uh, pray, praise God that those things aren't filtering down into your ears. I hope they're not. Okay? But I want you to know the truth, and then you'll be able to discern the error when it presents itself. Okay? Let me tell you something. Jesus' death is substitutionary, and it is vicarious. It is for you specifically that Jesus died if you are a Christian. Amen? Okay. Um, and then also the idea of propitiation or propitiatory, which means the appeasement or satisfaction of God's wrath towards sin. Okay, so what's, what's happening here is, is that because there is sin, there is a consequence, right? The consequence of sin is what? Death. death. The consequence of sin is death. The consequence of sin is death. But let me ask you a question. What motivates it? What motivates death because of sin? God and God's wrath. Death is God's wrath because of sin. Okay? So you have this thing. Now take this thing and put it in your brain for a minute. God's wrath. It is God's holy anger um, put forth against sin because of sin. Okay? So there is this thing. What is it? God's holy anger towards sin. We call it God's wrath. Okay? So because sin exists, God's wrath exists. Okay? So there is this very real, live, holy anger of God. Now, imagine if God's anger were unrestrained, what would happen? Good night. Right? I mean, God created this, the whole universe, uh, the, the trillion universes in a spoken word. 
right? So he measures out the span of the heavens with, it, with his hand like that, right? Imagine what would happen if God's holy anger were unrestrained. Okay, just, just think of this stuff as mind-blowing. But here's this thing. This exists, family, okay? Listen, God is angry against sin, infinitely worse than I could ever describe to you with human words, okay? The result of it is hell. You ever wonder, you know, why, why, why the punishment of death is so severe? It's because God is so holy and sin is so evil. Are you with me? I, I could spend weeks just trying to describe that to you, okay? But I want you to understand this thing about the atonement. There is this thing about God's wrath. It is his holy anger that's exerted towards sin, okay? Now, here's the deal. If Jesus doesn't die for your sin, then you are going to die for your sin, which means you're going to become a recipient of, of God's wrath. God's holy anger. Which, by the way, is an eternal anger. It's an eternal thing. Okay? Now I want you to think about the atonement. Okay? This is what Jesus did when we talk about propitiation. This thing right here got satisfied. So that holy, burning, zealous anger of God has been quenched by the death of Jesus. There's not one more drop to drink in the cup of God's anger for the believer. Because Christ drank it to the dregs. It's satisfied. It's propitiated. Okay? It is also appeased. It's appeased. Okay? This is what I'm telling you. It's not just substitutionary and vicarious. Okay? That's what happens for us. Those are benefits we get. This is something that happens for God. See... We, we have such human thinking. We don't get this right. And I want to explain this to you. I'm going to take time to explain this to you. The estrangement from God that happens in sin is not us being estranged from God. It's God being estranged from us. We have become an abhorrent thing in the eyes of a holy God. I know people don't like to hear this kind of talk. They also don't like to hear about God's wrath, right? Okay, but I'm explaining to you the truth about how this works. God is the offended party. He's the estranged party. He looks at us as an unclean thing when we're there in our sin. As a matter of fact, God's so holy and so pure and so righteous, he cannot in himself embrace us in our sin. He cannot do it. His nature militates against it because he's so holy and so pure. And family, it's to the nth degree. I can't explain to you the intensity of these emotions that are in the being of God towards sin. Okay? They, they are infinitely uh, 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 met out because the character of God is infinite. God, God's not just a little angry with sin. He's infinitely angry. 
We're talking about almighty, omnipotent God, infinitely angry against sin. That's why the penalty of hell is so bad. You ever scratch your head and wonder, God, good night. I mean, I, I begin to think about hell. It's like, that seems so severe, God. To me, I think about it. I think, God, that's so severe. Okay? And this is what God says. Hence, learn, son. Hence, learn what holiness is. Hence, learn what purity is. Hence, learn what righteousness is. Hence, learn how wicked and abhorrent your sin is. Are you with me? So, I'm not trying to be a hard guy, okay? I'm just trying to amplify some of these things for you so you can kind of grasp what it's all about. So when we talk about propitiation, let me tell you, propitiation is a good thing. It's a real good thing, okay? And here's what it means. It means that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. It's been quenched. There's no more wrath left for you, and there's no more wrath left for me. None. Zero. For God has not appointed us unto wrath, but to receive salvation. Amen? 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Okay? Okay, so <clears throat> when we talk about propitiation, we're talking about the appeasement or satisfaction of God's wrath towards sin. Okay? We're not being propitiated. God is. You with me? This is something that is on God's side. It's, it's focused toward God. Okay? And we are benefactors of it. Okay? But it's propitiation. Propitiation. We are, Christ is propitiating God on our behalf. Okay? He's satisfying the wrath of God. He's appeasing the wrath of God. Okay? All right. These words that describe atonement. Here's another one. Expiatory. Expiatory. Or to expiate. Okay? Here's what this means. This means the removal of guilt. Okay? Or Christ canceled out or released us from the debt of sin. Okay? So here's what this means. Um, here I am. I'm standing here. And I owe this debt. I cannot pay. Okay? I, I, I owe this debt I cannot pay. Let's just call my debt right here. Right? More, more debt than I can pay. Big debt. Big, big debt. And um, <clears throat> what happens is when Jesus appeases the wrath of God, okay, it's all been paid for and taken away. So he did this to pay God's penalty, but here I am now with no debt. I got no debt. So for God, he satisfied God. For me, he expiated my sins. He removed my guilt. My sins have been drowned in the deepest part of the sea. They're on the ocean floor. They're as far as the east is from the west. So far as he separated our transgressions from us. I have no more guilt. I'm not guilty before God anymore. Because my guilt has been totally absorbed by Jesus the Christ. You follow me? So propitiation propitiates God. Expiation takes away my guilt. You with me? Glorious truth. Glorious word. This word that's just been so obscure to you and to me. Expiation. 
family. It's a word of wonder and glory and profound grace from God. You're free. You with me? There's no more guilt. I know how terrible your sins are and how they just eat at your heart. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. You've been washed clean. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. No more guilt. No more guilt. Okay? So stop thinking you're guilty. Jesus owns your guilt. Don't try and take it back from him. You with me? Don't be so hard on yourself. Yeah, if you're sinning, be hard on yourself. Repent, you wicked sinner. Okay? I understand there are many of us here who beat ourselves to death with our guilt. I don't know who you are. You know who you are. Okay? I want you to know what expiation is. See that? It's erased. It ain't there anymore. So stop bringing it up. Okay? You with me? Praise God. Is that a glorious truth or what? Amen. Expiation. We've been released from our sins. Revelation 1.5 says Christ Jesus has released us from our sins. Glorious. Glorious. Justification. Justification is a legal declaration of righteousness. Okay? Now, the word justification has to do with a courtroom, okay? And this is because God is revealed in Scripture as our judge. God is revealed in Scripture as our judge, okay? Jesus Christ in the New Testament is called the judge of the living and the dead, okay? We are all, all men are going to face the judgment of God, right? Ecclesiastes, last verse in Ecclesiastes, right? What's it say? It says... Um, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring into judgment every uh, sin, including every hidden thing. Amen? So the point is, is that, I'm sorry, I think it's every deed, including every hidden thing. So the point is, is that we're going to face the judgment of God. And that judgment is seen in Scripture as God is a judge and he's judging us and it's a, it's a courtroom thing. It's a legal proceeding. Okay? Enter atonement. Okay? Here we are. God's courtroom. Right? The bar of God's courtroom. The seat of his throne. And, and there's God on the throne in all his glory. Right? And uh, here's the judge's bench and we're sitting. Here we are over here. Little podium. Right? We are in big trouble. Amen. You with me? We're in big trouble. And here's this whole thing. You know, Jesus died on the cross, took away our guilt. But we actually incurred that guilt. Amen? We actually stored up the wrath of God for all that, all that time. For every sin we ever committed, we were storing up wrath. Right? So that if the books were open and it got read in that room, what was in the books? Without the book of life, man, we'd be toast. You with me? I mean, it'd just take a little time to read through the whole list. Maybe, of course, in my case, it'd take 14 years. But, you know, the point is, is just that. Um, 
This is a courtroom proceeding. And we are going to be judged by the ultimate judge. The holy, infinite, holy, pure God is our judge. Okay? And we're going to be judged by his holy word and by the terrors of his holy law. Okay? God isn't playing games, family. Go back and read the law. I mean, just read the Ten Commandments. You'll be dust. You won't even get to the second one. You'll be toast. Right? Much less, we've all broken all ten. Countless times. Right? Okay, so the point is this. The point is this. That when this proceeding takes place, enter atonement. What did Jesus do in regard to this courtroom setting? Here's what he did. Because he appeased the wrath of God and drank all the dregs of God's wrath, okay, and because he completely removed our guilt, there's no more guilt left, now then, how does God see us? Okay? It's not that we're not guilty sinners. We are as guilty as they get. Because we sinned, Jesus had to die. We're guilty. But what does God do? He declares us as righteous. This is what justification means. Because of what Christ has done, we have been justified in God's sight. God has said, because Jesus did that, I now declare you righteous. I've paid your penalty in full. There's nothing left to pay. Okay? However, justification does not stop at, at, at the covering over and appeasement of God's wrath towards sin. Because it includes this whole other aspect of what Christ has done. So, got to get rid of my courtroom here. What happens is, you got this big sin problem. Well, what does that make you? It makes you a sinner. So you're unrighteous before God. Okay? So if Jesus comes along and he takes away your sin, your guilt has been removed. But that doesn't make you righteous before God. Right? So here's this glorious thing about justification and this glorious thing about atonement. Jesus doesn't just deal with the sin problem. He also does what we call imputation. And this means that the righteousness of the perfect life that Jesus lives is imputed to our account. And on the basis of expiation, which is the removal of our guilt because of sin, and on the basis of imputation, which is Christ's righteousness being imputed to us, we then are declared righteous. Okay? That process is called justification. Okay? Now, I want to tell you this. I want you to feel the weight of this. Okay? This word, justification, is the most important doctrine in the Christian faith. Okay? This word, justification is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls, said Martin Luther. Okay? The more I learn about this, the more I understood what he meant. Okay? You want to know what 
was of such grand importance that it would cause such a schism as the Great Reformation? Here it is right here. This is the doctrine that caused the schism between the Catholic and the Protestant church. Justification. And, and that's why it's so important. That's why people are dying over this thing. Okay? Justification is, is a very specific thing in the scripture, and the Bible has a lot to say about it, and we're going to learn about it. But the point is, is that this is a, 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 a portion of the work that was done in the atonement. Okay? It's a very important, important portion of it. Okay? And we'll look at what it means. But justification is, again, a legal declaration of righteousness. Uh, you know, there's this whole argument. Do we actually become righteous in and of ourselves? You know? And, and the answer to that is, no. We don't become righteous. I understand there's scriptures going through your mind. We'll get there. But the point is, is that we get declared righteous. We get declared righteous. Okay? Okay, I'm going to go through these real quick and we're going to end. Sacrifice. The sacrifice is a word that's often used in regard to the atonement. Uh, it is the personal cost to Christ was death in our place. Christ was the actual victim of divine justice. He was the sacrifice that died for us, right? He is the atoning victim. You get that? He's the victim. He's the victim. Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins. Reconciliation. The restoration of relationship of mankind to God. Christ reconciled us to God and repaired the alienation we once had with him. Okay? Reconciliation. We've been brought back together. We've been brought to be one again. Okay? We were reconciled to God through the body of Jesus. Right? Colossians 1.22, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Amen? Amen. Okay. Redemption. Redemption means to buy back, to pay the price. This is, a, this is an accounting word. Okay? This is a money word. It's a monetary word. Redemption means to pay the redemption price. Jesus paid the actual price, the requirement, the cost was paid by him. We were redeemed. We were bought back from the penalties of sin by the price that Jesus paid on the cross. It's redemptive. It's redeeming, right? When we were kids, we'd go around and we'd gather up bottles all around the side of the highway, right? And we'd take them to the place and they'd give us, they'd give us a nickel for every bottle, right? And, and when we took them in, what did we do with them? We redeemed them, right? We brought them back and they gave us money, right? Okay, redemption to buy back. Christ paid the price demanded by divine justice for our sins. And then just this term salvific, if you haven't seen that before, you're liable to see it in some of my writing. Salvific is of salvation or according to salvation or saving quality. It is what Christ did was salvific in that it saves us. Okay? So the word salvation is a term to describe the state of having been saved and being saved and will be saved. Right? 
And, uh, and that is salvific. Christ saved us. Amen? Amen. Okay. So then, all of these terms uh, deal with and relate to the alienation that, God, that has taken place between God and man because of sin. Sin has brought about the desperate need of mankind to be reconciled to God, lest they be destroyed forever away from the presence of God. Okay. The Bible plainly sets forth the truth, sets forth the doctrine that man is a sinner, is guilty of breaking the law of God, of violating his righteousness. God has therefore judicially delivered man over to his own will so that corruption has entered in whereby he has lost all desire to serve God. Okay, so we're going to go in and start talking about how the scripture views these words we've been talking about. Right? Um, I'm going to end here. But uh, if you did not get this book, I want to recommend this book to you. Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. Okay? Go out and get this book. If you read this book along with the class, you're going to learn a ton. And this will be a ready reference for you. Whenever you're thinking later and trying to remember some of those truths you learned, you'll have it in here. Okay? Uh, John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Okay? Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we praise you and we honor you, Lord. We thank you for your goodness to us, God. We thank you for this rich, amazing, glorious truth of the atonement. God, what heavenly wonders dwell in thy atoning blood. God, we praise you. I pray that you would open up the eyes of our heart and cause us to see clearly what all of these truths that your word reveals are. I pray, God, they would become treasures to us, that they would cause us to be fully assured in our faith, and, God, that they would cause us to be effective and productive members of your family, and, God, that they would cause us to worship you, that they would cause us to stand in awe of your glory and your power and your amazing love. Oh, Lord, devote our hearts to you through this meditation on the cross. We thank you for your love to us. Because of Jesus' cross, we pray. Amen.